All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, introducing Ben Freeman, research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He wrote the book, The Foreign Policy Auction. And um, he uh, previously was director of the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative at the Center for International Policy. And that's a mouthful, but check this out. They've got this uh, brand new giant thing. Holly Zhang and Ben Freeman, Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative, the Taiwan Lobby. So I guess you're still moonlighting back with your old uh, crew there. And um, this is all about the Taiwan Lobby and uh, incidentally and coincidentally coming out right around the time that Nancy Pelosi's making her controversial trip over there and everything. So can't wait to dig into this. Welcome back to the show. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing great, Scott. Always a pleasure to be here with you. Hell yeah, happy to have you. And, um, well, it's just bottom line first. The foreign governments around the world, China and Taiwan both probably, have more influence over the American government's policies towards them and towards whatever other countries they're interested in than the American people, and that would even include, to a great degree, American business. It's yeah, I, I, I think that's really true in a lot of cases, Scott. And I think when people see these things in the news, like like Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, uh, things going on in the Middle East right now, they read the headlines, but they they don't know that beneath those headlines, there's these massive multi-million dollar lobbying and influence operations that are helping to make a lot of this happen. And Pelosi's trip is the perfect example. You know, everybody acted like they were blindsided by it. But as you mentioned, I wrote a report on the Taiwan lobby two years ago, and we saw all this coming. Taiwan's just been paving the way for this for years. This was just sort of the exclamation point on on work they've been doing for a while. Yeah. Um, Well, it's just an amazing phenomenon, and it's part of being an empire or having an empire is it's in the interests of every state in the world to have as much influence with the United States as they can, as we make it that way. But it's just funny because I think I'm being redundant from another interview with somebody last week or something. Sorry, audience, but it's still, I think, a good point that, like, if you were just some guy from here, you might think that foreign governments just interact with our State Department. They send their ambassadors to deal with our ambassador, and they do the thing, and they argue about what to do, and they have their idea, and they debated at the White House and eh, where that has almost nothing to do with it. In fact, it's all this money, all this stuff going on on K Street down there, just the same as if they're lobbying for tobacco or for trucks or for tube socks for soldiers or whatever it was, any other racket in D.C. 
Yeah, I think the American, I think you're dead right, Scott, that like, most of the American public, I think, has this image of uh, uh, this diplomatic process working like, like it's an English sitcom, like it's Downton Abbey, you know, where they're just sitting there having a, having a nice tea with your ambassador and our ambassador and, you know, they, they figure it all out there. But it really couldn't be further from the truth. What, what's really going on is, is the swamp of D.C., it's it's lobbyists meeting with members of Congress. It's lobbying firms hiring former members of Congress themselves to do the lobbying of their current colleagues. You know, it's the ultimate conflicts of interest, and in the whole system is fueled by multi-million dollar contracts from these foreign governments. Which, in many cases, you know, as we mentioned, you know, we talk about. Uh, China, we talk about Russia a lot, we talk about Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates. In a lot of cases, these are not our you know, our friends out there in the world. These are authoritarian regimes who are our adversaries, or maybe in the case of Saudi Arabia, our, our frenemies. Um, these are not the regimes that I think a lot of Americans would, would be happy that uh, our politicians are in bed with. Yeah. And you know what? Even if people really love the Israelis, you got to admit, I mean, there are times where they sell our secrets to China and stuff like that. But even if you love them, they get us into trouble. They create enemies for us, and it's just undeniable. Yeah. Like, and it's not for being a nice little Jewish boy minding their own business either. It's for their brutal occupation and mistreatment of the Palestinians and the Lebanese as well, you know, especially in the past. But yeah, and I think another big issue with the Israelis is uh, all the surveillance equipment. And, you know, we've heard about all of this with the, the, the Pegasus spyware. And, you know, the, this is an Israeli company whose software is being used to spy on American citizens. Um, so if you're at all concerned about your your privacy, your digital privacy, especially, you've got to be concerned about this Israeli influence, regardless of what, what whatever you think about Israel or not. Um, then the fact that we have somebody who is supposed to be, you know, this vaunted U.S. ally that's using this sophisticated technology to spy on American citizens. I think that should trouble anyone here in the U.S. Yeah. Um, well, and I'm sorry, I got to bring it up though. Just the entire schism in the Middle East, they got us fighting on bin Laden's side against the Shiites, even though it wasn't Hezbollah what knocked our towers down. It was the radical Sunni Salafi, you know, uh, right wing edge of the Sunni side that attacked us, our own former, uh, you know, mercenaries, uh, blowing back and all of that. And yet, even just after six, five, six years, not even, five years, Bush launched his redirection. Everything's forgiven, Osama bin Laden. We're back on your side and been fighting for him ever since. And nine-tenths of the reason for that is Israel, and the other tenth is Saudi. Yeah. Eh, maybe yeah. it's more 70-30. But they got us. We're fighting against. We're preferring the bin Ladenites to the Shiites because of what these foreign governments want. Regardless of what happened in New York City. Yeah, there, there, there was a famous comedian uh, back in the day who said 15 of the 19 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. We attacked Iraq. Did we miss? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> deliberate, uh, accidentally on purpose. One of those mistakes, I think they call it, you know. Yeah, Scott, I mean, it's funny you bring this up because I was recently going back um, and, and doing some more historical research 
tracing back, one of the big firms for the Saudi lobby is a, a group called Corvus Communications. And they signed a contract with the Saudis right after 9-11. In, in, in just a four-year period after 9-11, uh, they got more than $50 million from the Saudi government to just basically do this giant spin operation for the Saudis. Mm -hmm. um, and it worked. They, I, I, I think they were a big part of it. And, and, and you mentioned the Israel lobby. They were a big part of it, too. Um, but putting the money into these influence campaigns, it, I, I think it really does work. And the Iraq war is the perfect example of just how damaging and disastrous that can be for U.S. foreign policy. Yeah. All right. So let's get into what used to be called the China lobby. But now China means Beijing and not Taipei. So now it's the Taiwan lobby. But this has always been a very influential right wing lobby, especially inside the Republican Party. Um, but they've got a lot of money and they've been going to work. And you wrote a gigantic PDF all about it with your co-author here. So please take us through it, sir. Yeah, sure. So we took a hard look at the Taiwan lobby because we, you know, much like we're talking about with the Israel lobby, sometimes our our, our friends out there in the world they can uh, they can get us into trouble too. And nobody had really taken a hard look at what Taiwan was doing here in the U.S. in terms of its influence. There's all this talk about you know China's influence and everything, and I think you know I think it's justified. China does have a ton of influence here. But uh, I think we also need to take a hard look at our allies, too, and, and see what they're doing to get us into trouble. So what we found was Taiwan was doing quite a bit. And we found, for example, that uh, since 2016, they've spent more than $20 million on lobbying and influence operations here. Um, and a, a lot of this is congressionally focused. And, and, and in fact, we found that they, they've had meetings or, or telephone calls or emails uh, with more than 90 percent of all members of Congress. So the vast, vast majority of members of Congress, uh, they or their staff have been touched in some way by, by Taiwan's lobbyists. And we found that in many cases, their their work was successful. For example, a couple of years ago, they were really reaching out to uh, Pelosi's office, trying to secure a meeting with the president of Taiwan and, uh, and, and the speaker. Uh, and they were successful. They, they, they ultimately got the meeting when, you know, Pelosi met with the president. And so now when you fast forward from that to the to this recent trip, you see how this lobbying and this influence really helps to pave the way for, for some of the, the most pivotal moments in, in this U.S. foreign policy process. And, and another facet that we delved into a little bit, my, my, my wonderful colleague Eli Clifton at the Quincy Institute, uh, he's done a lot of great work on this too, oh, yeah. is Taiwan's influence at think tanks. Um, Eli has a great piece up on responsible statecraft uh, about exactly this. And man, they're... They, they throw money at the lobbying firms, but but boy, howdy, do they throw some money at think tanks, too. And, you know, it, 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 it's some of the biggest players in the in, in the think tank space, too. It's, you know, places like Brookings, Center for American Progress, Hudson Institute. Um, they've all received hundreds of thousands, in some cases, millions of dollars uh, for, for, from the Taiwanese government. And what we found recently, particularly, you know, following Pelosi's trip, is that these same think tanks that are getting big bucks from uh, from Taiwan, they're also the same think tanks that are making light of Pelosi's trip and that are providing her some cover fire for this very risky trip, you know, saying things like, oh, it's no big deal that China's running these military operations, you know, oh, 
everybody just needs to calm down about Pelosi's trip when I think most Americans and, and frankly, most foreign policy folks in D.C. were looking at this trip and going, why? What, what, what did the U.S. get out of this and why would we do something so provocative? Mm -hmm. I think the answer for Pelosi and, when, and what we know from our research is that I, what, what she got and what paved the way for this trip was the Taiwan lobby. What were these lobbyists and were these think tanks that are in part funded by the government of Taiwan? Mm -hmm. All right. So her previous scandal from just a couple of weeks ago was her husband investing in uh, NVIDIA, I believe it was, one of these powerful uh, chip firms, right before the Congress announced this bill for massive new subsidies in the name, I think, of bringing them home from Taiwan. Uh, so that we're not so dependent on Taiwan in case China invades them. But anyway, then they got a big stock bump and everyone could tell the obvious conflict of interest and in insider trading, which is illegal for Americans unless you're a congressperson. And right. so Pelosi got away with it. But then so she goes straight to Taiwan where they make the chips. And in fact, then the New York Post has a thing about how she had her son with her. And he's a big investor in a Chinese company, which they didn't, I don't believe, explicate a direct conflict of interest there. If anything, it seemed like the conflict would go the other way, unless he knows something we don't about an upcoming merger between companies or some kind of thing. I don't know, but they didn't seem to detail anything in the post there. So, um, but can you just talk a little bit about that, about, um, is there any indication from your point of view that just, you know, pumping and dumping and these kinds of things with these chip companies has anything to do with her activity, her own personal corruption, and or uh, can you identify for us any particular conflict of interest that her son might have there, Ben? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All good questions. Unfortunately, um, I my my knowledge of the, of the stock market is very limited, and I didn't. I, I I did dive into this a little bit when the uh, in the Farah filings, and you know I didn't find any smoking guns there, or anything that would that would shine any more light on this. Um, but I will say that, you know, having kept an eye on, on Pelosi's, uh, her, her <laughs> exquisite stock trading skills, I would say if any of us, you know, wants to get rich, uh, just follow her moves, <laughs> you know, follow those portfolios, because I think it's, you know, clear she, uh, she either has a crystal ball going or, uh, or, or, or there's something else going on that has made her stock portfolio very, very lucrative. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm going to have to say it's the corruption there. Um, <laughs> at the Libertarian Institute, we publish books, real good ones. So far, we've got Will Griggs' No Quarter, Sheldon Richmond's Coming to Palestine, and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other, and four of mine, Fool's Errand, Enough Already, The Great Ron Paul, and my brand new one, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And I'm happy to announce that we've just published our managing editor Keith Knight's first one, The Voluntarist Handbook, an excellent collection of essays by the world's greatest libertarian thinkers and writers, including me. Check them all out at libertarianinstitute.org books. And for a limited time, signed copies of Enough Already and Hotter Than the Sun are available at scotthorton.org books. Hey guys, I had some wasps in my house. So I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a Bug Assault or anything else you buy from Amazon.com by way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org.
so keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. All right, now, so talk just a little bit about the role of some of these famous names like Bob Dole and Dick Gephardt. And I thought I saw Tom Daschle in there somewhere, but then I didn't see his name come back up when I was looking for it. But uh, these are some powerful lobbies directly influencing Pelosi, huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. Or I yeah. guess Dole was focusing on the Republicans, obviously, right? Yeah, yeah, he was. But I mean, that, that, that's the interesting thing when these folks turn um, foreign agent. They do they they do tend to focus on folks uh, within their own party, but they still have sway because of name rec recognition with folks from the other party too. And so you, you know, you see this with, with with Taiwan hiring some of these former members of Congress. Um, in other countries, too. In fact, my, my colleague, Nick Cleveland Stout, and I, we have a piece up on responsible statecraft, too, where we wanted to get a hand on just how much this, we call it the revolving door, uh, revolving door to foreign agents, how common this was. And we found almost 100 members of Congress have done this in, in, in the past 20 years. They've left Congress and gone on to work for foreign powers. And in a majority of cases, they go on to work for authoritarian regimes. <laughs> they go on to work with some of the, the the worst dictatorships in the world. You know, every from you, you know the Saudis, Muammar Gaddafi, uh, you name it. If there's a dictator out there in the world, chances are a former member of Congress uh, has worked for them. And now, so, but what about senators? I mean, Daschle was in the leadership, right? Uh, yeah. He and Gephardt, that was like the majority leader in the whip, right, or something like that. That's right. That's right. And, and, and that's not uncommon either. And, 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 and going back forever or going back just the last 20 years or going just, back to when? Just the last 20 years. Yeah. 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 We only looked at, um, I believe it's to either 2002 or 2003. I mean, uh, but do you have it, any indication of whether this is how it's always been in the 90s and 80s and 70s before that, that U.S. senators would just go sign up to represent foreign governments lobbying in America? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's happened before too. We we didn't do our, our quantitative analysis. Didn't didn't go back that far. Right. But yeah, we have anecdotal examples. Um, going back to World War II, even so the the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which That's is amazing. my bread and butter, goes back to 1938. Um, and, we, and we've got examples even during World War II of folks that were uh, you know former members of Congress and who went went on to become uh, lobbyists and, and propagandists registered under the Foreign Agents uh, Registration Act. Uh, even that long ago. So, you, you know, th this is a decades old thing that just keeps coming to prominence more and more. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I guess the only thing that would stop that would be a law that these people would have to pass against themselves, which they're not going to do. Right. Or some kind of cultural moray against this sort of corruption and conflict of interest and, you know, like a feeling of... Uh, a, a consensus of dishonor about someone who would do such a thing. How could you be Tom Daschle, the majority leader of the Senate, and then turn around and sell your influence to foreign states? Yeah. It's yeah. insane. It sounds, in what world is this perfectly normalized? I guess this one, but it sounds <laughs> to me just on the face of it, like the most blatantly corrupt and dishonorable and shameful and unpatriotic thing for somebody like that to do. I don't know, some schmuck congressman I've never heard of. I don't know. But a U.S. senator, the majority leader of the U.S. Senate? Right. You know? And in, 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 in it's not uncommon either. You know, we have all these examples, former heads of the uh, foreign uh, foreign affairs committees too. Uh, Ed Royce, for example, Ileana Ross-Layton. You know, they're all working as foreign agents for dictatorships now. 
Uh, Pelosi, speaking of Pelosi, her former uh, chief of staff, uh, Nadia Melshami, uh, he's now a lobbyist for the dictatorial government in Egypt. Uh, so you go, you go across the board, it's the, the most high-profile members of Congress and their staff that are, are becoming these foreign agents, cashing out and making millions of dollars to and, and effect, literally work for dictators. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, I'm not making fun because all my hair is falling out, too, but I'm just saying that if you say think tank to me, I picture a big fat guy with a bald head sitting there working on papers, <laughs> thinking very hard about what America's national security policy should be and having very detailed in-depth and nuanced arguments with other people like that too until they come up with the smartest answer to protect america's national interest but you're telling me that when it comes to weapons sales and by weapons we mean f-16s and sea missiles uh, you know sea skimming missiles and this kind of thing um that uh these policies are decided essentially by the salesman first and the foreign government first, and then they only essentially launder their motive through said eggheads and make it seem like this was somebody's smart idea rather than someone's just project for either their foreign national interest or their domestic financial one. Right. Right. Yeah. I think when you were first talking about think tanks, you know, with the, you know, the fuzzy headed guy just, you know, reading his book, I think that that's what I like to call think tanks in theory. That That's what we we would like to believe think tanks do. And I think a lot of these, you know, more, um, you know, on the. Uh, on the take think tanks would like you to think that they do. But in reality, it's it's what you described there, Scott. It's the think tanks in many cases, they're doing a lot of, of activities and work that looks a lot like what these foreign governments, lobbyists and PR pros are doing. Uh, they're in many cases, they're just regurgitating these lobbyist talking points, uh, but they're putting them into op-eds and reports. And in some cases, we know that foreign governments are directly paying them to produce uh, certain reports that are favorable to those foreign governments. For example, um, the United Arab Emirates paid the Center for New American Security uh, for a study on the U.S. exporting uh, armed drones. And surprise, surprise, uh, a few months later, CNAS comes out with a study that says we should, in fact, export armed drones to, wait for it, the UAE, the very country that funded them to do the report. Um, So we we see these examples just left and right now. And I think the unfortunate thing is for the average member of the American public who sees one of these experts on on TV or, or, or on the radio, um, you know, they hear them as if, you know, they're announced as they're some expert from, from this place, the, this fancy think tank. But very, very rarely in those interviews is it ever mentioned that those think tanks take hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars from these foreign, the exact same foreign governments that these experts are talking about. Yeah. I mean, and here you guys have this thing, uh, you and Eli together at Responsible Statecraft. Feds accuse Brookings President General Allen of illegally lobbying for Qatar. Retired four-star general. That's right. And the, the president of arguably the most prestigious think tank in America or in the world. And he is now uh, uh, allegedly being accused of, of illegal lobbying for Qatar. The president of the Brookings Institute. Now, does that just mean he didn't register for FARA or he did something worse than that? Yeah, he, 
according to this uh, warrant application, he hasn't been indicted. All of this information was revealed in a, a, a leaked um, uh, document uh, from the Department of Justice. And, and what that alleges is that he was he was effectively working as a, a registered foreign agent uh, for the Qatari government for a very brief period of time. Um, in that, you know, he wanted to get some compensation for what he was doing. Uh, and then uh, allegedly, you know, he was the FBI talked to him about this and they, they allege that uh, he he destroyed some documents. He deleted some emails that they were later uh, able to obtain. So it's a pretty significant accusation against him that not only was he he operating as an unregistered foreign agent, that he was uh, he was actively. Um, uh, trying to undermine the FBI's investigation on top of that, too. So it's a very serious allegation. Well, it's yet to be seen if he gets indicted, uh, let, let alone convicted for all of this. Yeah, well, I ain't going to hold my breath for that. But still, it's important <laughs> to note these are the people who lord their supposed honor and specialities and every kind of thing over the heads of the rest of us. We're supposed to defer to them. But apparently John Allen's nothing but a crook. So glad we got that straight. <laughs> and yeah, and I think that like that's the. End he also of my lost a bunch of wars, but never mind that. No harm, <laughs> no foul there, right? Yeah, yeah. That's a uh, that's a credential these days. <laughs> Seriously, that's how you know you're in with the right crowd because they all lost these wars together. So yeah, there you go. Right. <laughs> now, so so to be specific on the Taiwan thing, you really do have, uh, as you document in the piece here, this major effort. To get Congress to decide, I mean, through the think tanks, or whatever, to get Congress to appropriate all this money to pass legislation mandating that America transfer all these weapons to Taiwan. The policy is really made in Taiwan yeah. first, yep. not by the United States, not by any egghead or any general or anyone taking the American national interest into account at all. It's just the foreign yeah. government and the arms salesmen and their servants, including our congressmen and senators yeah, and president. I, I mean, I mean, Scott, with something like this, I think it combines a lot of the complexes that are out there. First, you know, it combines the military industrial complex, because if you're an arms maker, you, you want to sell arms and, and they don't appear to have too many qualms about who they're selling those arms to. And so if Taiwan's a candidate to sell arms to, they could sell billions of dollars to them. There, those military industrial complex lobbyists are then activated to try and get that sale to go through. But it also activates this what, what I focus on, which is the, the foreign influence industrial complex, where you get these foreign government lobbyists on board, too, who can then they, they're pushing the same agenda as these weapons makers are. And so you have these two you know, multi-million dollar lobbying and influence campaigns all pushing in the same direction, getting everybody in on the take because they're, of course, making a lot of campaign contributions to members of Congress, too. And then, as we discussed before, they're hiring them after they leave office as well. So everybody in the little D.C. bubble is in on the take. And at the end of the day, the the American people have to pay the price for this in a much more aggressive and unrestrained U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, man. Oh, man. Well, thank goodness we've got you guys keeping watch <laughs> on them and like a hawk, too, but the good kind of hawk. So we really appreciate it, Ben. Yeah. Thanks, Scott, as always. Pleasure. Absolutely. All right, you guys, that is Ben Freeman. He's over there with the great Kelly Vlahos and Andrew Basevich and Trita Parsi and Eli Clifton 
and William Hartung and the great crew at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Here he co-authored this new study with Holly Zhang. It's called the Taiwan Lobby. It's for the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative at the Center for International Policy. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.